Uh, Today's Bible reading will be found uh, in Mark chapter 8. We're starting at verse 27, reading through to 9 verse 1. So if you're using one of these blue Bibles, then it's on page 1011. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with, his, with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. It's good to be with you again. And as we hit this uh, great passage, um, I wanted to kick off the way we kicked off with the kids. I wanted to kind of do the same thing. I'm going to do it exactly the same way, I reckon. I want you to figure out uh, who these three people are. Very good at sport, uses a ball, number one, won about six times in a very short period. Some people say it's not a sport, but they're wrong because they're naive. (laughs) (laughs) Jason Day, thank you, Peter. Australia's number one. Number world number one at the moment is a guy named Jason Day, and we'll get to him a bit later because I think there's something very interesting about him. Another person, computers, fruit, Steve Jobs. Another one, lunatic, potentially, oi, <laughs> potentially powerful, Donald Trump. Now, I've, I've kind of revealed a few of my opinions there, right, as we did that, right? But we all have opinions on people. If I was to just say to you, who is Jason Day? All of you'd go blank, except for maybe a couple golf nerds. I'm looking at David and Peter and myself. And, but you wouldn't know. If I was to ask you, well, who do you say Don Bradman is? Even if you hate sport, even if you hate cricket, more than likely you'll be able to say he's one of Australian's icons. And, whether, and give an opinion on whether you think he's a good guy or a bad guy. I think he's a bit of both, but that's another story. We like our opinions. We love having opinions about who people are. We vote for a party soon, don't we? 
Well, we vote for a party in a seat, but let's face it, we're choosing between personalities. That's often what happens in elections. I love arguing about my opinions on football players with Seb because we disagree nearly every single time and he's wrong and I'm right. It's great. <laughs> often, often though, our opinions about who people are don't matter. They just don't matter. Maybe they're a bit of fun. Sometimes, though, it could just be gossip and slander. Sometimes our opinions are very important. Today, your opinion is the most important. You see, our series has been thinking about who is Jesus. But today, it's not just the who is Jesus, it's, Jesus, it's who do you say Jesus is. What's your opinion? See, Jesus, today, we figure out what he wants from us. And I've forgotten my clicker, so I'm just going to run over here to grab it so I can helpfully move you along the service. Last minute, taking off the jumper wasn't helpful, was it? Um, so, yeah, what we're going to do today is run through the passage this way. Um, that's the outline, and in your sleeves there wasn't an outline in the booklets. That's all we're going to do. We're going to look at this passage from two parts, part one and part two of this passage. Who is Jesus, and is he worth following? I think this passage actually kind of breaks up why we called the series what we did. Who do you say I am? The king of an upside-down kingdom is who Jesus is. And then, is he worth following? Well, I think Jesus kind of says, first, know what I mean when I say, follow me. And then, where is the worth in it? Why do it? That's where we're heading today. You see, these verses are a great transition in the story of Mark's Gospel. And if you haven't read Mark's Gospel... Put aside a couple hours, if you're a fast reader, one, if you're a slow reader like me, a bit longer, and just read it all through to hear the story. Because as we consider who Jesus is, I think today is the day where all of us need to see that the passage is saying, it's time to put a marker in the sand and to start to decide. Jesus is saying who he is and you have to engage with what you think about it. See, what we've done so far in this uh, series in Mark, we've discovered lots about Jesus. The first week we discovered the whole book is about what Jesus says in chapter 1 when he said, very obviously, it's all about the kingdom of God being near. That's why I've come. The kingdom of God's near, therefore repent and believe. And everything's about revealing that. And we've spent a few weeks seeing he's a guy who has the power to do that. With all sorts of healings and uh, powerful miracles and his authority over the other leaders. And Jesus has shown his extraordinary power. And there's been allusions to the fact that he's the one they're waiting for, the Messiah. The people of, of, of the Jews are waiting for a Messiah and every now and then in the story it's kind of mentioned, here he is. But the story is a bit strange because he keeps on telling them to be quiet about it. Now, what's going on? Why is it when they reveal who he is, he says, don't tell anyone? What's this mean? Who is he really? That's what we're wrestling with in this passage. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have a look through what Jesus is saying about who he is together. 
Let's have a look at these first few verses on the screen there. 8, 27 to 30. So Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. People have many different responses to Jesus. Now, I reckon if we ask that today, I'm not very certain if we went up to the village, many people would say, I reckon he's John the Baptist or Elijah. I don't think that's going to happen. What, what, what people are going to say, if you ask the random person, an Australian, who is Jesus, what might people say? He's a good man. He's a good man, I don't know. Two very common responses, I reckon. What else? Sorry? Yeah? Yep, just a swear word. Yeah? Lots of opinions. Some may be informed, some may be not informed, some confused. Maybe someone might say a prophet, but people have very different opinions. Well, then Jesus goes on in verse 29 What about you? He says to the disciples, Who do you say I am? Now, of course, if you're speaking to the disciples, who's going to speak up first? That's Peter. Peter answers, You are the Messiah, the Christ. Messiah and Christ, the same, the Hebrew, the Greek, the same word, meaning anointed one, because that is what you do when you're a king who's getting crowned as a king. Before there were crowns, there was anointings. It's the symbolism of saying the anointed one is the king because you put oil on them to identify them as the king. It's a significant moment where Peter's saying, you are the one we're waiting for. And notice, it's the Messiah. When you put a the in the front of uh, words like that, sometimes it's just carrying the, the sentence through. Sometimes it's to say, this is the number one, the numero uno, the kind of perfect one, the one that every other one is subordinate to. The Messiah. There are other kings that have come and gone. There are other rulers. Here is the Messiah. And here we go again. Jesus' response, don't tell anyone. Jesus warned them in verse 30 not to tell anyone about him. He keeps doing that. Why? Well, it's because how does a king become a king? How do kings become kings in our, in, in, all the time? They take it. They're, they're a king because they have the kingdom and they take it with power and authority or their family line has taken it with power and authority and dictators take their rule and their, king, their kingly rule is usually through some kind of domination, whether it's economic, history is just littered with atrocities of kings who have just taken their reign by destroying people. Genocide by Pol Pot. Germany went through a horrendous time because of a man's desire to reign and to shape the world in his 
wicked image. And so if they're thinking that this is the Christ who's going to come and take his kingdom, even in a good way, but they can only think he's going to come and take it and conquer. They're being ruled by the Romans. Here he comes. He's the Messiah. He's the one we're waiting for. We're finally going to have our king. We're going to be in charge because he's going to lead us and rule over us as our great king. The question is, before we get to Jesus turning this on its head, I don't think we can just leave that question, who do you say I am, with the disciples. I think that question should be asked of us. Who do you say I am? That is, each one of us. What is your answer? That's where we need to go. And I think, um, I first discovered it, I think, first time I remember reading it was by um, a guy named Josh McDowell, and his book was trying to make the case that Jesus existed and he died and there's evidence to say he rose again. I read his book called More Than a Carpenter. I don't know if anyone's ever read that uh, little book. Um, many years ago I read it and pointed out that there's really only four categories. Um, he might have only had three, but I think it was four categories um, that everyone really basically fits into who Jesus is. I'll put them up there on the screen. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or a legend. That is, when you come to hearing all these things about Jesus, we've discovered lots of things already about Jesus. Like, he's clearly identified himself as God. Is he? If he's not, do you think he's, he's lying? Or maybe that's a bit harsh. He's not lying, he's just, he's just not well. He has delusions about who he is. That's possible. See, he's either maybe just, well, it's a good story. He didn't lie and he's not unwell because it kind of didn't really happen that way. Even though historians... Many historians, even non-Christian historians, in the academic world, it's, it's just not in dispute that he existed. But many people would consider him to be a legend. But there is the fourth one, Lord. Or, he did speak words, he did come... He did say he was God, he was in his right mind, it did happen, he's not a legend, and the response, the challenge for us personally is to consider what he's actually saying is, I'm Lord. Is he a ruler, like all the other anointed ones that have gone before? Well, it's now the time for him to not tell everyone to be silent. Here's the twist. Here's the turning point. Here's where we get to where we see our second point in part one. He is the king of the upside down kingdom. See what we see in verses 30. Here we go. Jesus warned them not to tell. Oh, sorry, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. 
He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. What's Jesus just said? He began, this is a new idea, and this isn't the, uh, the only time he says it. We go in three times, very quickly, he makes this prediction about himself. That the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. That is bizarre if you're thinking and saying, I'm the king who's coming. No other king ever comes and takes their kingdom by saying, Here I come triumphantly and I'm going to die. This is the king of the upside down kingdom. I've mentioned all of these recent kingdoms. How many of them do we want to embrace? How many of them last into all eternity? Look at Jesus' way. See, he doesn't take his kingdom in the same way. He lets his life be taken. And he says, the, the title that he gives himself more often than any other title, the Son of Man must suffer many things. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with that little phrase, but the Son of Man phrase, on one level, it's beautiful because Jesus is kind of using it in its common way and then in its pinpointed way. The Son of Man is a phrase used in the Old Testament to identify with being human. And God talks to some of his prophets and says, Son of Man, do this. That is, you human, go and do this on my behalf. Jesus as human, Son of Man. But then, he's also, by saying this, there's this um, passage in Daniel, in the, in the book of Daniel, where there's a son of man who is the one who reigns forever. Who, who is throne is eternal. And he's called the son of man. And Jesus is saying, my upside down kingdom, my kingdom that is going to come in through my death and my resurrection, is eternal and forever. I am Lord. It's a spectacular kingdom and one that we can't just ignore. See, it highlights, what we see here is that we're highlighting the contrast between what's happened previously and where Jesus has now come and said, my way is totally different. You see, the who Jesus is and the how he brings in his kingdom kind of bleed together. And then how we respond all kind of come together in what he's done for us. Jesus is the Lord who is king of all. You see, let's move on. He is this king of the upside down kingdom. But what you need to ask yourself is, do I want to be part of this kingdom? Or is this kingdom something that I don't think exists, that I think is lunacy, or I think is just one big lie? Now, Jesus just didn't bring in the kingdom and say, there you go, there it is. He wants us to know what it means to be part of this kingdom 
at this turning point, we engage with how do you and I be involved in it if we're on board? We see in verse 34, up on the screen, it says, verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. He's calling in all those who may want to hear, those that are following and those who are inquiring, those who are kind of, whether they're cynical, whether they're wondering, whether they've just been attracted to his miracles, and he's telling them, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to be my disciple, you want to know what it is to follow me and be part of this kingdom, here we go. And what does he do? He doesn't say what tragically sometimes Christianity gets uh, watered down to being. He doesn't say it'll mean that you'll just have a good life and this life now will be better. It's the better way, even though it is. He doesn't say all your problems will be fixed. It doesn't say you will succeed now if you have a good following, if you do it well. He wants to make it clear that there, there is a cost The call is serious. You see it there? Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Three things, he says. You must deny yourself. You must give away. You must give away something of yourself. It's to say no. Now, I didn't realise putting on my port scarf just because I was cold was going to cause such controversy at the door. But many of you said no to me. (laughs) You're denying. You're denying the way of the mighty port. Right? You're denying it. That's your decision. (laughs) That's your agenda. That's irrelevant. But what he's saying here, it's not deny this about what's going on around you. See what he's saying to, to deny? You. Totally giving up of yourself because you, you're in a, this amazing relationship with this upside down kingdom where the king has given his life for you. And he's saying, so you need to understand, deny yourself. It's extraordinary. The agenda is to totally change Who is in charge? Your priority is not you. Your priority is him. And to make this clear, the second point there we see is to take up the cross. Now, that's not literally like Jesus, get the horizontal beam and put it on your back. And all of us now need to do, you know, like at Easter, sometimes they have those uh, parades. Some Christians kind of take it literally and it's pretty full on. I don't know if you've seen them often in the Philippines and other countries. It's way intense. He's not saying, right, Trinity Grove, you've got it wrong until you get that on your back. What he's saying is, take up your cross because when I took up the cross... Who was I? I was a dead man walking to be mocked. He's saying, you champion this kingdom, no matter the cost. Whatever burdens lie ahead, whatever cost there is, you champion it. Because you have that imaginary horizontal cross beam on your back. And so, in light of this, that third point, follow me. Follow me 
becomes a little bit more real, doesn't it? See, what does Jesus want for you, as we kind of call this talk? He wants you to follow him. Where does he go? He goes to the cross. And where to go his way? Where not to leave anything behind? It's an extraordinary, there's no middle ground. Sometimes we want to say being a Christian is just good, which it is. But Jesus wants us to see it in a bigger, bolder, uh, serious way. I went to the cross for you, literally, so that you can have life with me. That is the way you are to think now. I don't know, I remember very early on in my faith going to a Christian convention in Katoomba, just outside of Sydney, and a pastor from South Africa came, um, Frank Retief, and he talked about his church, where um, it was quite a few years ago now, where in South Africa and Cape Town, some guys just came in and just started killing people. Um, if they didn't give up following Jesus. And people on the news asked, why did, why did your church just not say, okay, no, we, we'll, we'll give it away? So, because he went to the cross for us and we go with him. They had to literally do it. They had people on the news say to those who did it, you need to know by Jesus, we forgive you and you need him to forgive you. That's an absurdity to this world, to say something like that. And yet this upside-down kingdom requires that. See, this is what Jesus expects. You see, if you'd ask how much of your life on a scale of 1 to 100 is for Jesus, is it 1, is it 10, 20, 30, 40, 100? Now, it's pretty obvious now you must say, oh yeah, clearly you're saying it's a hundred. But when we're being honest with ourselves, if you love Jesus and follow him, how often do we stop at 80, even 99, 99.5? We just go, I just want this little corner, Jesus, that isn't in your kingdom, that isn't yours. And this great passage today reminds us, once again, we come back to him. You see... Jesus says in uh, verse 35, an amazing thing. Verse 35, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. He reminds them that you know what's at stake here? Your life. This is not just an option on whether Labor gets in or Liberal gets in and it's really, really important for how, which direction this country is going to go in. This is your eternity that is at stake. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. If your life now and what you have now matters so much to you, you will lose it. But if you give it up, whatever place, it, whatever happens... You will have life. It's an amazing challenge for us. You see, why follow? Why follow? Well, look at verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? 
Why follow? Is it worth following? Well, if eternity is at stake, I suspect the answer is yes. To forfeit our soul, to give up our possessions. Of course, we might say we don't have many possessions and this isn't for us to worry about, but here we see we are those who have a lot to give up, if we're honest. Now, I love kind of inspirational stories and I, and I brought up uh, Jason Day to you before and all of you looked at me blankly, which is exactly what I expected. But if he was a football player, if he was even maybe a cricketer, all of you, whether you love sport or hate sport, would know him and be amazed by his story. It's an extraordinary life story. There's a little uh, YouTube video called uh, Never Say Die about what happened after he won. That's when you know, someone wants to champion him. But the story of this guy was he lived in outback Queensland, very, very poor, had very little. His dad took him to the tip. They found a three wood. He hit a tennis ball and his dad said, wow, you're very good at this. And he went on with life. His dad made him play golf every day. He kind of loved it. His dad died. His dad died when I think he was about 10. His sister could not cope. His mother was stuck in this uh, rural place. He decided at a very early age that he would just go and drink, that he would get drunk with his mates, he'd get into all sorts of mischief, and he was off the rails completely. He had no way of getting out of it. His mother decided, well, we've got some money because our, our, our fathers died. What will I do? and asked his, uh, her daughters whether he could give all the money for Jason to go to a golf academy, a golf school. And they said yes. He meets a guy who becomes this amazing mentor who's still his caddy, who guides him through life and gets him to a point where now actually he's turned his whole life around. And that's just a little clip of this story of him saying, if my dad didn't die, the worst moment in my life I wouldn't be who I am today. It's an extraordinary story. It's many things taken from him and what, he, what he's done. It's been really interesting. But there's something I just wanted to bring to you today. He said at the end of this video that I watched, and people are talking about how great he is, and he said, there is no story to me, just millions of us trying to get to a certain point in life. I just want to try and win as much as I can before my time is over. I just want to show people, never say die. But he will. What struck me so clearly, as much as I was amazed by it, the pinnacle that he could strive for is to win at golf, to be known as the best and to have a family, but then it ends. And he acknowledged it. I just want to do it for as long as I can until it's over. Even the great stories, even the great moments, they end. To have it all, to gain the whole world, and to not have this kingdom is just delaying the inevitable. What would you sell your soul for? Would you love to be famous? Would you love to have that fortune? 
or just a little bit more money, to have a better house, to have a house, to have success, to have lots of it, to give your kids every single opportunity, and you'll do that at all costs, to have opportunity in your business to succeed and go further. What is it that you kind of sell a little bit of your soul for? You see, those four options really only come back to two, which I just want to go back to. You see, there's a T there that's missing. The liar, the legend, the lunatic, ultimately is those who don't follow Jesus. If he is Lord in your life, that his death is what saved you, you follow him. That's what it breaks down to. And that's why gaining the world and Jesus is such an important issue. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? I want to suggest to you today, not at all. That's the challenge for us. See, I know, I, I was trying to think of the times when I felt someone has sold their soul. One of the saddest moments in my life, many years ago, back in Sydney, Someone who was at church, a young adult who was at church, who became a Christian, got baptised at our um, at church, was going really great, was involved in lots of things, was really smart, really engaging in Bible study, really great part. And then one time I got an email. And it's thank, it initially started off thanking me for everything that was happening at church and, and they appreciated what I'd done. And then went on to say, I don't for a moment disbelieve that Jesus died. Don't disbelieve he lived, believe he rose from the dead, don't question that. But I have to walk away because I want this relationship that Jesus doesn't approve of. It broke my heart to read that it wasn't because they didn't believe anymore, it was because they had to sell their soul for a relationship, no matter how good it is, will end. And then there's eternity. The flip side is, what value does Jesus have for your soul? His very life. That's the value he places on you. So if we ask, is he worth following? I want us to see he absolutely is. Why do we follow him? He is, well, he is real. It's true. This did happen. Why is it worth following him? Well, this sacrifice, this upside down kingdom is extraordinary. It's built on love. It's not built on power and money and greed and success. It's built on him seeing us and loving us. It's what compels us. His love of sacrifice. Why is it worth following him when things may just go pear-shaped now? Because Jesus said the kingdom is to come and it is eternal and it is glorious. Why is it worth following him? Not if the goal is success now or a better life. That's not one reason to follow him. There's a new book 
out that I've just borrowed, I uh, just bought on my uh, uh, Kindle this, this week by Hugh Mackay. I've mentioned him before, I think he's one of the really interesting um, kind of uh, anthropologists, social commentators of Australian culture. And he's written a new book called Beyond Belief. And what's it about? Well, let me tell you what it's about. It's, he says, what do people actually mean when they say God? Considering how, how much harm it causes, why does religion continue to prosper in the world? Were Bible stories ever intended to be taken literally? Can we, both, uh, rational and, can we be both rational and spiritual? If, like most Westerners, you think of yourself as basically Christian in your attitudes, values, ideals and way of life, but you can't bring yourself to embrace all the beliefs and doctrines of the institutional church, you may well recognise yourself in these pages. He goes on to say, Why did I write this book? Over the past 25 years, our yearning for something to believe in has become increasingly obvious. As people look for ways to fill the gap left by the mass retreat to traditional religion, Beyond Belief explores some of the ways we might satisfy that yearning. What he's done, he's seen culture, and I'm really interested to see where it goes. And I'm imagining I'm going to being challenged by it, encouraged by it, angry by it, and all those kind of things, because that's what he does. He's a really helpful, even though in some ways uh, tragic in his conclusions. But what he's saying is, is that we keep on rejecting Christianity, which is religion, we reject it. But we keep on getting drawn back to it in a kind of social way, because we're desperate for something to believe in. So, here's a way in which we can embrace that to have a good life and forget traditional religion. So what he's saying is, the ideal of Christianity, of religion, of having a good life, is what we want, but we don't want God. Is Christianity worth following if that's kind of what you want? Just a good life? I suspect maybe Jesus is saying, get beyond just thinking about religion. Get beyond thinking about all of the traditions and come back to me and see, is my kingdom, my way, worth following? Don't bother yourself with trying to pick and choose the, the yearnings that you get from uh, official religion. Come to the source of your yearnings. Me. So as we finish, as we sin, uh, get to our finish, all these positive reasons why we should follow the kingdom, he's real, there's love, the kingdom is to come, but he does point out that even if you don't like those things, let me give you the flip side and the serious warning. You see, in verse 38, he says very clearly, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Can you see how there's so many great reasons to want to follow this kingdom? And there is the sober warning. So where do we leave today? I want to suggest three things. I want to suggest to you today 
that if Jesus is someone who you acknowledge is actually the one in charge, there's no longer a time to not put the marker in the sand. Today is the day where you say, right, I do believe he is Lord. I do see that he's died for me. I will, today is the day where you decide, I will follow him. To acknowledge that Jesus has died for you and that you belong to that kingdom is not something you need to earn. It's not something that you now need to see, well, maybe he'll accept me now. He has died to offer it for you. And today is the day to make that decision, if that is you. But secondly, I also want to suggest to you, don't stop with ignorance. You might still be thinking he is a bit, maybe it is a lie. Maybe the Bible's not real. Maybe, maybe, he, maybe he is just a bit whack. Maybe it's just not exactly how it is. Maybe this is just a myth. If you've got a maybe there and you've got no real reason to back that up actually, that you've never fully investigated it, I want to encourage you to not walk away from Jesus in, with a level of ignorance. If that's where you end up, do it informed. Engage with him. Read who he is. That's why we're here at Grove. We want people to discover the real Jesus. If you decide he's not for you, that's your decision. But we love for people to actually get through all the, all the confusion and see he's the king who's offering a great life forever. I'd love to wrestle with you, answer your questions in all sorts of different ways, and we'd love you to keep coming if that's you. I'd love to catch up with you if you'd like to debate one-on-one, if you want to talk it through with me or with Jack or someone else that you know. But don't stop with ignorance. There are those three ways that end up you don't follow him. But how do we follow him? How do we? Well, I think we go back to those three things. So when we go back, what we see is, first of all, if we're going to deny ourselves, you destroy your self-idol. You see, one of the things that we need to constantly come back to as followers of Jesus, we, we, we're even subtly, constantly challenging ourselves to kind of put us in God's spot, just to put it plainly. That we want to be in charge, we want to be the ruler of our life where that's where God belongs. A follower of Jesus constantly says, no, I will destroy that idol of myself. God is number one. We destroy that obsession that we have. Secondly, I think the cross points us to being other person-centered. Jesus gave up his life. He's telling us in following him to give up our life, to follow him, to serve him and each other. To not just think that Christianity is something that I leave for myself because that's kind of a bit of a nonsense. It's kind of the obvious progression of denying yourself to live a life of sacrifice. Whether that's with your money, your time, your work, your deeds, that is, all of your life, we do it for each other to glorify God. That is what it means to follow. And lastly, if we're following him, you need to be ready to die. Now, more than likely, none of us will 
as I described earlier. But your heart's ready for it. It's easy in Australia, but maybe it won't always be the case. I think these things we will talk about over and over and over again. What does it mean when we talk about being a disciple of Jesus, following Jesus? It's these kind of ideas that we kind of come back to in all sorts of different ways, in detail. Today, my goal is if you're a follower of Jesus, that you commit to these principles. You get rid of the idol of yourself. You want to care for the other person as you follow in Jesus' sacrifice and you're ready to die. It surely is worth following this great king. Let's pray to ask him to let us to do that today. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you are Lord. Help us wrestle with that wherever we're at. Father, we do pray that you help us to consider who you are and to follow you, not on our own terms, not only partly, but today will be the day where we give you our life, where we maybe recommit our life to you, where we thank and praise you for the difference of your kingdom, where you've given your life in our place. Amen.